This podcast may contain copyrighted material pursuant to the Fair Use Doctrine of Section 107 of the Copyright Act of 1976. Limited use is permitted for specific purposes such as criticism, comment, news, reporting, teaching, scholarship, education, and research. Welcome to episode 29 of the Underground Christian Podcast, where the Bible and the 21st century collide head-on and make a real mess. Truth is a weapon in the hands of Jesus and his followers, and lies are a weapon in the hands of Satan and his followers. True followers of Jesus want the truth to get out, and likewise, true followers of Satan want the truth suppressed, adjusted, and tweaked, and sometimes twerked. On a sunny Wednesday in Matthew 16, Jesus found himself confronted by the religious and political rulers of the day. Being naturally allied to Satan and his worldly value system, these leaders were doing everything they could possibly do to deny the truth of who was standing in front of them and pretend he was just a really annoying regular guy. And it could have been Thursday. These black robe-wearing men had repeatedly tested Jesus, trying to extract some statement from him that they could use against him, or, failing that, at least get him to do something that would annoy and turn off the huge crowds that he drew everywhere he went. Figuring he was no Elijah, these religious leaders thought it would be a good idea to put him to a test to prove who he wasn't in their minds, namely a prophet of God. Starting in verse 1 of Matthew 16, it reads, Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, When it's evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites! You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times? A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Much like when the soup guy told his annoying customers in Seinfeld there would be no soup for them, Jesus told his annoying religious leaders that there would be no sign for them. Today, the modern Pharisees and Sadducees still demand a sign from heaven to believe in Jesus, but unlike the Pharisees and Sadducees of old, they are getting really close to getting their wish. Unfortunately, when that happens, it still will not persuade their evil, wretched hearts to turn to God and flee from their idols of wealth, power, prestige, intellect, technology, and perversion. So powerful are those idols. Back in the first century, Jesus called the Pharisees and Sadducees hypocrites to point out their unwillingness to recognize who he was out of fear they would lose their coveted positions and status. It was a deserved title since these were the intellectual elites of Israel whose job it was to recognize the Messiah when he came and respond accordingly. They were experts in the scriptures, which were filled with a myriad of clues to help them discern when the Messiah would come, what he would look like, and how they could authenticate his coming. Jesus railed against these men because they had, at their fingertips, more than enough evidence to recognize who he was. But they didn't want to recognize who he was because he threatened their idols. Today's leaders have the same idols that the Pharisees and Sadducees coveted, and they express the same contempt for Jesus as Lord because he still threatens their idols. Oh, they will put up with Jesus as long as he's just a theoretical, quiet, benign pacifist. But if his followers have the audacity to claim he's a royal king who must be obeyed, then they absolutely will snarl viciously and contemptuously in response. It's true that Jesus hasn't returned yet, and it has been around 2,000 years since the promise was made, but that's not a very good reason for these people to get all confident that he will not ever show up. They're being quite foolish blaspheming his name, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father as an imaginary God in the sky, just like Yuval did a few episodes back. What do you think might make these kinds of mockers believe in God and Jesus? Would it be a clever argument or a sign from heaven? The Pharisees wanted a sign, but Jesus said none would be given to them but the sign of Jonah. The modern mockers will be given a sign too, if they live long enough, but it won't be the kind of sign any of them are going to appreciate. Last week, I promised that we would get into the instructions that God provided Christians concerning the times we're in, so that's on the agenda today. But first, let's frame up in our minds where we are in history. All millennialists' opinions notwithstanding, the Great Tribulation has not yet occurred. The end times are not over, and the great and terrible day of the Lord lies yet future. What do these facts mean from the perspective of our daily lives? They mean that the period of time described as the end times in the Bible will take place in a technological era. Why? 
Because we already live in a technological era, and technology moves forward, it advances. It has never regressed, and there's no indication that technology will regress in the future. So whenever the end times take place, they will most likely take place in a technological setting. Therefore, we should take what the Bible records about the end times and interpret it in the context of a technological setting. The authors of the end time scriptures, Isaiah, Daniel, Matthew, and John, to name just a few, had no concept of the technologies that we take for granted today. They had no language to describe these technologies and no framework with which to understand the effects of the technologies. When they wrote their words, they used terms and descriptions that were common to their era. Our job in the 21st century is to interpret their terms in a modern context to find out what the Bible has to say about the end times in our modern era. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees and Sadducees were the two religious sects that made up most of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the group of men who ruled Jewish society and whose primary responsibility and purpose was to recognize the Messiah when he came and crown him as leader of the nation. Jesus was angry with the Sanhedrin because despite having an understanding of the scriptures, they could not, or more likely would not, recognize the signs of the times. Christians also have more than enough signs available to them to discern the time period that we call the end times. The whole purpose of the book of Revelation is to instruct Christians concerning that time period because Christians have an important role to play in that period. All Christians, the good ones, the bad ones, and the flippy floppy ones. And Revelation defines those roles. Implicit in that purpose is the ability of Christians to recognize when the end times begin, much like the Sanhedrin were expected to recognize when the Messiah arrived, and we Christians don't want to end up like the Sanhedrin. If it were not possible to recognize the signs of the end times, then the book of Revelation would be interesting, but not at all practical. God would have written a book more for our entertainment than the practical purpose of letting us know what we are to do during a very important portion of history. It would be just another weird epistle, which are lessons in theology and behavior for Christians. The epistles follow the gospel accounts and acts. They guide and refine our Christian attitudes, behaviors, and intentions toward God, toward each other, and the world. But the book of Revelation is different. It does not focus on how to live life in general, but on how to live life during a very specific period of time. Why does it do that? Because Christ loves the church and he is giving the church some coping strategies in an era when the world will really, really hate it and do everything possible to pervert and corrupt church members. Christians love to focus on the first coming of Jesus Christ, which was a necessary preliminary first step to establishing a kingdom with people in it. The whole point of the church age that has followed the resurrection of Jesus is to give Christ's selected followers time to rescue a group of people out of Satan's kingdom and bring them into the kingdom of Christ. Christians are the first fruits of his, Jesus's, kingdom. Jesus was the first fruits of the dead, according to 1 Corinthians 15:20, since he was the first person permanently raised from the dead. Christians are the first fruits of the spirit of God among men, according to Romans 8:23 because we are the first people to have the Spirit of God take up permanent residence in our bodies. When Jesus comes back to establish his kingdom on earth, he will lead the first fruits into his kingdom, just like it says in 1 Corinthians 15:23, where it reads, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So, as the future firstfruits who will march into the kingdom with Christ, Christians have an important role to play, and that is the focus of the book of Revelation. It is the instruction manual for Christians to recognize when the end times are approaching and to know what to do when it arrives like a barreling Mack truck. In Matthew 24, verses 43 to 44, Jesus said, But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This is the only event in the Bible that refers to Jesus as a thief. In the context of the passage, Satan is the ruler of the world, and therefore he owns it and everything in it, at least for now. Jesus came into this kingdom to steal something out of it, namely the ecclesia, the true saved church. 
this passage references an event that will occur in the end times, and we will get to that in the future. But the important point for today is that if Satan knew exactly when that event would occur, he would stop it from happening because he has the power to stop it. Therefore, Satan can't know the exact time, or at least he can't be told the exact time of the event. And if he can't be told the exact time of the event, we can't be told either, or else he would know the exact time. But what we can know is the season when the event is going to take place. Therefore, we need to wake up and discern the season, just as it says in Romans 13:11, The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. One event we need to be awake for is the end-time tribulation. Scripture spells out some very specific events that will take place just before and during this period of time. If these events were not possible during a past era, then the end times could not have occurred during that era, no matter how awful life became for the people of the day. They might have thought they were living through the Great Tribulation, but the church leaders should have known it was not the right season. Here are the key requirements for the end times in no particular order. Number one, Israel has to exist as a nation. Isaiah 66.8 predicted that Israel would be born in a day. So before 1948, any period of tribulation was not the end times because Israel did not exist as a nation. But on May 14, 1948, in one day, Israel was born out of the chaos that had been the Second World War. Now that it exists, the end times could begin at any time, at least with regard to this particular requirement. Number two. There must be a great apostasy, according to 2 Thessalonians 2.3. It reads, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, which is the second coming of Jesus, will not come unless the falling away, the apostasy, comes first. Also, 1 Timothy 4 gives additional insight into this event, starting in verse 1, where it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter time some will depart from the faith. The latter times is a euphemism for the end times, and depart from the faith means apostasy. This letter goes on in some detail describing what the apostates will do and why they will leave the faith. This great apostasy has not happened yet, but it could at any time. So, number two could happen at any time. Number three, a temple must be built in Israel, or at least an altar for sacrifice on the Temple Mount. In Matthew 24:15, a chapter concerning the end times, we see that a temple is implied in the text. It reads, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. Now here, the holy place, the term holy place, always refers to the temple. I suppose it could mean the spot where the holy place used to be, but that's not a good way to interpret scripture. The text should be interpreted literally unless there is a really good reason to interpret it figuratively, and there isn't. So the holy place means a temple. What does Daniel have to say about that? He says, Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. That's the reference that Jesus told people to go, you know, pay attention to. So not only will there be a temple, the sacrificial system will necessarily have to be restarted. At the current time, there is no temple on the Temple Mount. There's a mosque, which is a problem if you want to build a temple. However, it has not stopped a lot of very important people in Israel from working out the details for the reconstruction of the temple. They have the funding. They have the engineering plans. They have the holy materials for the temple. Furthermore, the Jews have recreated a class of priests who will perform the function of the original Aaronite priests. They have recreated the temple implements. They have recreated the temple oils and other ritual materials and they have even found a red heifer. They have all the priestly garments made. All they are missing is the building. Estimates are that the temple could be reconstructed in under a year, and there's nothing physically stopping the temple from being constructed at any time, unless you consider an all-out war with Islam something. If you would like more information on this project, just go visit templeinstitute.org. Number four. The Antichrist will establish a worldwide economic exchange that will prevent people from buying or selling if they do not belong to the Antichrist system. That's in Revelation 13.7. This requirement for the end times was not even remotely possible until recently. Even on a local level, it would have been impossible for the entirety of human history to establish this requirement. But then, China went and created the social credit system that is now being tied to a digital currency. 
When this system is complete, the process by which this requirement can be brought into reality worldwide will be realized, and it's not going to take very much longer. And finally, number five, the Antichrist will have the power to kill every person across the entire planet. This attribute of the tribulation is found in Matthew 24, verse 22. Again, for all of human history, that ability was simply impossible. No one, no matter how megalomaniacal he was, could kill everyone on earth. Genghis Khan couldn't do it, and neither could Adolf Hitler. Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong gave it a good go, but they came up short. But today, this ability is now within reach. A combination of nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons, coupled with artificial intelligence, transhumanism, and robotics, brings this requirement into the realm of possibility. Technology has brought the world to a point where all the requirements of the Great Tribulation are within reach, which makes this the first time in human history that the end-time prophecies could occur. Worse, we have powerful people who control all of these technologies, people in government, people in industries, and people who are not necessarily looking out for our best interests. We have international organizations who work closely with these people, organizations like the United Nations, which aspires to be the super government of the world, the World Health Organization, which claims that it has the authority to overrule national governments for the sake of common good, and the International Monetary Fund, which provides financial resources to not only foreign governments, but to international organizations and banks. To facilitate communications among the leaders of all these organizations, a group of private, invitation-only clubs has been formed. Behind those exclusive doors, away from the annoyance of the media and the press, the decision-makers of the world regularly discuss things that they don't want you to know about, but that are very important to them. Foremost of these benign-sounding organizations is the World Economic Forum, which is headed by the enigmatic Klaus Schwab. Mr. Schwab's right-hand man and closest advisor is Yuval Noah Harari, who describes himself as a public intellectual, historian, and professor at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. There are not two more closely connected individuals to the hidden and secretive workings of the world leaders and their associated organizations than Klaus and Yuval. As recently explained by Mr. Harari, the world's current leaders don't see the world the same way you and I do. Part of what is going on, on maybe a deeper level of, 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 of the human mind, is that people sense, a lot of people sense, that they are being left behind and left out of the story, even if their material conditions are still relatively good. In the 20th century, what was common to all the stories, the liberal, the fascist, the communist, is that the big heroes of the story were the common people. Not necessarily all people, but if you lived, say, I don't know, in the Soviet Union in the 1930s, life was very grim. But when you looked at the propaganda posters on the walls that depicted the glorious future, you were there. You looked at the posters which showed steel workers and farmers in, 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 in heroic poses. And it was obvious that this is the future. Now, when people look at the posters on the walls or, or listen to TED Talks, they hear a lot of, you know, these big ideas mm. and big words about machine learning and genetic engineering and blockchain and globalization and and they are not there. They are no longer part of the story of the future. And they are correct in thinking that, that the future doesn't need me. You have all these smart people in California and in New York and in Beijing, and they are planning this amazing future with artificial intelligence and bioengineering and, and global connectivity and whatnot, and they don't need me. So maybe if they are nice, they will throw some crumbs my way, like universal basic income. So on, on one level, you know, it's, it's the economic and military realities. If you go back to the middle of the 20th century, and it doesn't matter if you're in the United States with Roosevelt, or if you're in Germany with Hitler, or if you're in, in, in the USSR with Stalin, and you think about building the future, then your building materials are those millions of people 
who are working hard in the factories, in the farms, the soldiers in the... You need them. You don't have any kind of future without them. Um, and now fast forward to, to the early 21st century when we just don't need the vast majority of the population. The, the future is about developing more and more sophisticated technology like, again, artificial intelligence, bioengineering. Most people don't contribute anything to that except perhaps for their data. And whatever people are still doing, which is useful, these technologies increasingly will make redundant and will make it possible to, to replace the, the people. So are you feeling lucky today? Do you think you are one of the favored few who have capabilities that are sufficiently unique and important to warrant your continued existence in the world that these people are actively creating? Well, if you're a Christian, then you definitely are not one of those favored few. You are actually a target, not an opportunity. And if you're not a Christian, you should not think that gives you a pass to the future because unless you are already part of the selected crowd, the best you can look forward to is a life of confinement, servile enslavement, and premature death. You see, these men and women want to bring back the glory days of feudalism where you will own nothing, they will own everything, and they will charge you through the nose for every little scrap you get. And they really couldn't care less what you think about it. Unlike the feudalism of the past, this time they have no intention of allowing the serfs to rise up and depose them. They are rolling out a fail-safe built-in control system, and you are the object of that system. The funny thing is, they have not hidden the plans from us. They have let us know what they're doing for years. It's their joke on us. They spent years laughing at us behind our backs because we, in their minds, are too stupid to believe what they've been telling us. They have disclosed all their plans, all their strategies, all their technologies, and they've been diligently working on them for decades and have done so openly and brazenly. They've taken out patents on key technologies that quite clearly show their intentions. Take, for example, patent 2020-060606, a Bill Gates special. It is titled, Cryptocurrency System Using Body Activity Data. Let's break down the abstract a bit, because it's interesting. It reads, Human body activity associated with a task provided to a user may be used in a mining process of a cryptocurrency system. Now let's start with the phrase, a task provided to a user. This is your master assigning you work to do. We know this is the case because it is used in a cryptocurrency system, which is defined this way in the patent. A virtual currency, also known as a digital currency, is a medium of exchange implemented through the internet and generally not tied to a specific government-backed fiat currency, such as the US dollar or the euro, and typically designed to allow instantaneous transactions and borderless transfer of ownership. One example of virtual currency is cryptocurrency, wherein cryptography is used to secure transactions and to control the creation of new units. Now, while the writing is dry and tedious, you can't say they aren't telling you important things about their world. Cryptocurrency, digital currency, and virtual currency are all terms to describe something that does not yet exist. Contrast these terms with fiat currency. It's illuminating that Bill Gates is so open with his description of our current currency situation. Fiat means declared. It is fiat because a government, like the United States of America, for example, declares a piece of paper to have value. It actually has no value at all, unlike gold or silver-backed currencies. It is backed by faith. It's not faith in God, but it's faith in government's ability to enforce its declared value through compulsion. A digital currency is not even as real as a piece of paper. It is just an electronic ledger system that is operated over the internet. It has the convenience of being both instantaneous and widely available, it is a controlled system, the control coming not through your wallet or safe, but through someone else, somewhere else, using a means you do not control. The control of your resources, in other words, is transferred from you to someone else, somewhere else. It may be convenient, but the convenience comes at a cost. The first sentence also mentions human body activity and mining without defining what either means. So let's continue with the patent abstract. It reads, a server may provide a task to a device of a user which is communicatively coupled to the server. Okay, 
Here we have a server, which is a computer, communicating a task to a device of a user, such as a smartphone. This is not you asking the computer to deduct some bubbles from your bank account to pay for a latte. This is a computer assigning you a task through your device. It doesn't say what this device is, but it's not a stretch to envision it being a cell phone or similar communication device. It further, the, the thing then goes on to read, a sensor communicatively coupled to or comprised in the device of the user may sense body activity of the user. Hmm. A bit more clarity on what this device might be about. Let's start with this sensor that now appears. This sensor can detect body activity. It doesn't specify what this body activity is that the sensor can detect, but clearly the sensor has to be close to the body to detect its activity. And the sensor is communicatively coupled to the device that is communicating with the computer that has sent you some instruction. That implies that the two are not the same, or else they would not need to be communicatively coupled together. Communication implies distance, which is separation. So you have some sensor that can detect body activity that is separate and distinct from the communication device you will be carrying to get messages from the computer. Now, clearly nothing nefarious could possibly be implied here, right? It goes on to say, data may be generated based on the sensed body activity of the user. Well, data are bits of information, in this case digital information, that's generated by the sensor that's detecting the body activity. Now, where would the sensor be, I wonder? Might it be implanted into our bodies? Because it's not on the phone, because it's separate from the phone. But how would that happen? Well, that would be really tough to do unless you could get people to voluntarily place the devices into their own bodies, maybe by thinking they were placing something else in their bodies. Kind of like a body-designed Trojan horse. Now, why would a digital currency system that is strictly used as a transactional ledger need to detect anything about your body and its activities and then generate data from it. Hmm. It goes on to read, the cryptocurrency system communicatively coupled to the device of the user may verify if the body activity data satisfies one or more conditions set by the cryptocurrency system and award cryptocurrency to the user whose body activity data is verified. Oh, that's why. Conditions set by the cryptocurrency system means tasks assigned to the body as well as restrictions prohibited from the body. In other words, the body sensor data will verify that the body has done what it has been told to do and has done it within whatever parameters have been set for it. It also confirms that the body has not done what it has been prohibited from doing. And who is doing all this assigning and checking? Why, the lords and ladies of the new feudalism, of course. That would be your owners. But as you've all said, they only need so many slaves, so the rest of the useless eaters will have to go. And that is where we are today. We are at the have-to-go stage of this event. This kind of activity to eliminate a large number of people from this earth qualifies as World War III. It doesn't look much like World War II because World War II didn't look much like World War I. Technology advances and so do war-fighting tactics. This is a war pitting the self-proclaimed elite against the rest of humanity, and it's being fought by getting the vast majority of humanity to either suicide themselves or murder their fellow human beings when they find out they have been induced to suicide themselves and their families and their neighbors' families. They have brazenly incorporated their plots and schemes into fictional movies, books, and commercial advertisements just to shove it in our faces. That is called predictive programming, and they did it to flaunt their cleverness and superiority over us little people and to take our money in the process. They changed the ending of the movies a little bit so that the evil people lose, but that's just to keep us sheeple feeling good about ourselves. It's not how their story is really intended to end. In real life, they intend for the bad guys to win because they are the bad guys. But in the meantime, they let us have our little movie victories to keep us placated and calm until it's too late to do anything about our future. Take, for example, the movie Resident Evil and the Umbrella Corporation in the movie. What does the Resident Evil wiki have to tell us about this corporation and how it might relate to current events? Let's read it. It says, The Umbrella Corporation was a multinational conglomerate with subsidiaries active in a variety of industries from the 1980s to the early 2000s. Umbrella had influence in the production and sale of cosmetics, 
chemicals, pharmaceuticals, industrial machine production, consumer products, health foods, and transportation industry and tourism. Umbrella's large array of subsidiaries was typical for large-scale corporations, though it was purposefully built to cover up illegal activities. Soon after the opening of its pharmaceutical subsidiary, Umbrella Pharmaceuticals, Umbrella began developing biological weaponry for the militaries across the world as part of a worldwide conspiracy to accumulate deadly viruses that were directly prohibited by the 1972 Biological Weapons Convention. Umbrella Pharmaceuticals was able to cover their true intentions by researching vaccines for the same viruses as a front. Umbrella's true goal was not, in fact, a capitalistic urge for monopolization of a lucrative industry. It was eugenics. This fact was only known to corporate executives whose principal aim was to fund the Wesker Project, which was to birth a new race of virally enhanced and well-educated superhumans who would advance human civilization for generations to come with Umbrella's founders ruling through the remaining population as gods. Of course, in the movie, things went terribly wrong and the world was infected with a virus that turned people into zombies. You know, the zombie apocalypse theme, a time when people lose their minds and their humanity and become cannibals. The original Resident Evil movie was released in 1996, over 25 years ago. Do you think these people plan ahead? Oh yes, they plan far, far ahead, and we, their victims, have to play catch-up when we start to perceive that something is amiss. And you thought that movie writers were creative geniuses. It's not so much that they are geniuses as they are good at writing whatever they're told to write by the people who want to deceive and destroy others for power and money. These people are called psychopaths, and this particular group of power-hungry lunatics come from a long line of psychopaths. Just to give us a better idea the kind of people we are dealing with, let's listen to Dr. Ramani Durvasula explain about psychopathy on MedCircle. What does it mean to be a psychopath? Ah, so here's where things start getting into. We get into sort of interesting sort of semantic territory here. To be a psychopath, it's a term that probably ascribes best to this thing we're calling antisocial personality disorder. So psychopath is not a diagnostic term. It's a descriptive term. It's a sociological term, but it's definitely not a diagnostic term. Okay. But researchers will use it and that sort of thing. So a psychopath is somebody who tends to be very calculating manipulative, cunning, smart, malevolent, dangerous, exploitative. They have very little empathy. They don't really think through the consequences of their actions. They really don't care about the consequences of their actions. They break rules, ethics, laws. They violate moral codes. They're deceitful. A real picnic. Yeah, love to meet one of those. Um, but they're, it's not actually, you can't be diagnosed. Yeah, you, so if, if a person met those, those criteria, and they had, this is a long-standing pattern for them since childhood, we call it antisocial personality disorder, yeah. I understood. What about a sociopath? So sociopath, this is where people get very confused, okay? So psychopathy and sociopathy are very, like, you know, they're like the Venn diagrams. There's a lot of overlap, but there's definitely, they're distinct mm -hmm. entities. The sociopath in many ways is not as glib, socially skilled, successful, and manifest as well put together in the way the psychopath does. The psychopath in some ways is more chilling because they have an absolute lack of empathy. And if they have a relationship with someone, it is solely exploitative. It's to get something from them, sex, money, power, connections, you name it. The sociopath, in their very unskilled way, might get into a human relationship, but they still don't have any empathy. And in that relationship, they still remain very cold and, um, and, and still somewhat calculating, but really more cold and rejecting. The psychopath makes a better criminal. The sociopath tends to be messy, sloppy, and reactive. Your sociopath is your bar fighter. The mm. psychopath is a person who will kill that person three days later methodically. Mm. You see what I'm saying? So yes. it's like the sociopath tends to be more reactive. They tend to be more sloppy. They tend, don't tend to be as planful. They're not as sophisticated as the psychopath who tends to be coolly efficient and in that way almost more dangerous Absolutely. because there was a book 
um, that was that was written called the Mask of Sanity, and that's where they were describing. He was describing psychopaths in that book, and it was this idea that the psychopath can look sane because they actually there was some research that estimates that corporate heads, like heads of major corporations of all kinds, the rates of psychopathy in those folks is five to twenty one percent. So eight to, to 21. twenty-one. So depending on how you measure psychopathy, so it so, could be one out of five mm-hmm. major CEOs as a psychopath. hell yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Because those are there's all the stuff that the the power drive, the um, the willingness to have that sort of take no prisoners attitude to power in this absolutely almost scarily surgically precise focused way. That's very profitable. In preparing for this interview, I was researching the term psychopath, and it was almost. I would say 80% of the time correlated with serial killers. Mm-hmm. Almost like it was an interchangeable term. Like mm-hmm. almost all serial killers are psychopaths. Probably almost all of them are because there's there's a precision to being a serial killer, right? Because in order to be a serial killer, you have to have killed two or more people. Mm-hmm. So you got away with one, mm-hmm. right? So you got away with one and there's some there tends to be some very stereotyped there tends to be some very stereotyped stuff around serial killings, the keeping of trophies, mm-hmm. the taunting of law enforcement, almost getting some pride out of like getting everyone in the world rattled and paying attention to what you're doing. If you even think of folks like the Son of Sam or the Zodiac Killer, they were actually writing letters to the newspapers yeah. and, and to journalists and even to the police to, you know, even Jack the Ripper did that. Yeah. And so it's this sense that there's something, again, very methodical and there's almost a sadistic pleasure that they're Driving from committing these crimes. That's very much the psychopath's game because it's very planful. They think about it. So I just, I just can't believe that those people who are likely a psychopath mm-hmm. and perhaps one out of every five CEOs are also <laughs> a psychopath are in the same category. Well, think about where the overlaps are. The utter lack of empathy, yeah. the precision, the singular focus. Yeah. Very similar in those so two ways. So could you have... No, because you have to have utter lack of empathy. I was thinking, could you have a psychopath who uses his makeup for good, but it's not that way? No, because ultimately it's self-serving. So I guess maybe the only way you might see that is, let's say you have a psychopath out there who is running this incredibly successful corporation, but in order to sort of launder money or to distract people, raises tens and tens of millions of dollars for charitable Mm. causes. And that money really does go to protecting people, feeding people, giving them health care or something like that. So it's right. dirty money, yeah. but people get helped. And let's face it, that does happen. Yeah, you know, more than we like to think. Philanthropic, <laughs> philanthropic psychopathy. So, you know, it's money laundering to them. People benefit. I mean, I guess viewers out there could think about, is it worth it if somebody gets help that they wouldn't have gotten helped otherwise, but the money came from a really manipulative place? Out of curiosity, if you're watching this, do you feel like your boss is one of those who are 5% or 21% likely to be a psychopath? I, I've never worked for a psychopath. I can say that in all I don't think I have worked for a psychopath. I've worked for people who are deeply, deeply, deeply narcissistic. But yes. a full-on psychopath, you tend to see them in more competitive industries, media, business, law, yeah. maybe even sometimes medicine, like high stakes, uh, athletics, that kind of military. Yeah. High stakes. Um, high visibility kinds of spaces where the profit lines are high and the stakes are high. I mean, let's face it, when you hire people to do a job, you're not doing a personality test. You're looking at what they can do. And if they're making money and you're hiring for a company, then you're going to look at the person who hires money and you may not ask questions about what, how they're making, how they're getting that done Mm -hmm. until after the fact. According to Dr. Dervasula, Psychopaths are disproportionately concentrated in three areas of society, in large corporations as CEOs and other senior executives, especially in highly competitive and stressful businesses like pharmaceutical companies, for example, in the military, especially the senior officer ranks, and in the medical professions. As an aside, I I was in the army, and I can tell you that I ran into a couple of psychopaths. There weren't that many of them, but they were very easy to spot because they just wanted to kill everybody in sight. And I I mean, just they were looking forward to it. They just couldn't wait. There weren't that many of them, and that's good because the rest of us could control them. But what happens in a military when you decide to get rid of the good people and you decide to, um, you know, attract the psychopaths? That's a dangerous situation, and I think that's pretty much what's kind of going on in our military right now. They're trying to get rid of the good people, and they're trying to retain the psychopaths. Now, she didn't mention political rulers, 
But I think that goes without saying that there are a lot of political rulers that fall into that category as well. If her analysis is correct, it would also mean there are a disproportionate number of psychopaths in the highest levels of government agencies like the FDA, as well as private research institutions like the CDC, since corporate America loves to swap its executives with executives from these institutions now and then. That's how they capture the government agencies, and it's a well-known institutionalized practice. It also means there would be a large number of psychopaths in the defense industries, including defense research organizations, as they draw personnel from these highly motivated, highly driven corporate defense and scientific entities. Admirals and generals, for example, just love to take senior consulting positions in the defense industries when they retire. And then there are the medical doctors. There is not a profession that is more intense and pressure-driven than medicine, especially among surgeons and emergency room doctors. They're trained to help people in the most difficult circumstances, and that must mean that they would never hurt anybody, right? Well, not always. There was recently a news clip of one doctor, just an ordinary dermatologist, that is interesting, and let's play it. And now to a shocking scandal in Orange County, a local doctor accused of poisoning her husband. And now we have some of the evidence detectives used to build a case against the wife. KCAL 9 Orange County reporter Michelle Geely live in Irvine tonight to show us, Michelle, what she's you've uncovered. Well, you guys, her husband is a doctor as well, and his name is Jack Chen. He has videos from July 11th, 18th and 25th, allegedly showing his wife in their kitchen with a big bottle of Drano. Now, according to Jack Chen's lawyer, in one of the clips, you can see Chen's wife removing a piece of saran wrap that was placed over Chen's lemonade drink. She then pours Drano allegedly into that cup and puts the saran wrap back on top. Take a look. She tried to kill him. Poisoned, an Irvine husband says, with Drano. Dr. Jack Chen has three videos to prove his wife is behind it, according to his lawyer. These are screenshots, which are contained in court documents from cameras hidden in the couple's kitchen in July. They allegedly show the suspect, Yu Yu, who is also a local physician, pouring drain cleaner into her husband's lemonade. She takes up the bottle, she pours it in, she puts the cap back on, puts it back into the sink, as though nothing else was happening in her day. It is very calm, very methodical. You, a Mission Viejo dermatologist and mother, was arrested last week after these images were brought to Irvine police. Jack Chen's lawyer says his client has been sick for months. So he started to have unusual symptoms back in about the, the spring of this year, March and April, uh, and went in to get checked by a doctor and found that, that he had had some physical effects and started to then connect the dots. Aside from the chemical taste in his mouth, Yu's husband was diagnosed with stomach ulcers, gastritis, and inflammation of the esophagus. He then set up the cameras in the kitchen here at the family home in Irvine and made the discovery, according to his lawyer, Stephen Hittleman. Jack Chen filed a restraining order against his wife, who also goes by the name Emily. She is now out of jail. In the paperwork, he alleges longtime verbal, physical, and emotional abuse, which extends to their two children. Quote, if our children let Emily know that they enjoyed spending time with me or showed affection toward me, then Emily would put them in their room and yell at them until they assured her they would not show affection toward me. Jack Chen has filed for divorce. Now, you was held on $30,000 bail, and I, as I said, she has bailed out. When I was looking through the court papers, what it said was that at one point she called her husband and asked if he would bail her out, but he refused. Calm, methodical, cold, with a complete lack of empathy, and completely unfazed by killing someone. Those are the characteristics of a psychopath, and they are in all areas of society, but especially in leadership positions. God warned us that he would send a great delusion in the end times, and psychopaths are prime candidates to embrace and advance all kinds of delusions. But to the good news, Jesus gave Christians some very specific instructions about what to do in the end times, including details about what would be happening to help us identify the time we're in. A couple of episodes back, we reviewed chapter 1 of Revelation and saw who it is that's bringing us this information. It's God through Jesus Christ via the Apostle John. Now it's time to move on to chapter 2, where we are provided letters to a mysterious group of seven churches. 
There is a lot of debate as to what these churches are, what they might represent, and when these events occur, but I'm just going to state as a working hypothesis that the letters to the churches are not referencing historical incidents. They were not letters to be sent to contemporary churches of John's day, despite having names of familiar places. They are future prophecies, and that future could not take place until right around now, because that future they speak about is the end time period. That, after all, is what the entire book of Revelation is about. The letters are not epistles to advise us how to live well during normal times. God knows how to write, and it makes no literary sense to put epistles at the beginning of a book about the end times. You will see as we go along that these letters clearly pertain to the end times because they parallel two other sections of Scripture that definitely pertain to the end times. These three sections of Scripture are all talking about the same series of events, but from different perspectives. More importantly, we need all three sources of Scripture to put together a complete picture of what is about to take place in this technological era. And I'm talking about it happening soon. First, let's start with the number of letters that Jesus sent to the churches. He sent seven letters. Seven is the number of divine perfection, so the fact that there are seven letters is itself important information. The number seven not only tells us that this prophecy is from God, as if we needed to know that because Jesus told us already, but that it's vitally important to understand what is in these prophecies. Remember, the first chapter began with a promise that those who read or hear the words of the prophecy and keep the things that are written in it will be blessed. The first instructions of the book of Revelation come in chapters 2 and 3 with the letters to the churches. The first letter is to the church at Ephesus, which is Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 to 7. We will go through that letter today, and next time we'll cover the parallel passages to this text and continue through the next series of letters to get the full set of instructions that Christ gave us 2,000 years ago. The letter begins, To the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? The author who is writing is John the Apostle, and the recipient is the church at Ephesus. But John is not writing to the church itself. He is writing to the angel of the church. We've not even finished the first sentence, and already we've encountered text for which the meaning is disputed. Who or what is this angel, and who is to receive the letter? The word translated angel is the Greek word angelos. It means angel in the sense of a heavenly being, or more generally, a messenger. It could refer to an actual angel, or it could imply something else, which some commentators think is a pastor. So the debate centers on whether this letter is addressed to an angel or to the pastor of the church, in other words, the leader. It would be a bit odd for Jesus to refer to the head pastor of his church in Ephesus as an angel rather than simply using his name, because surely both he and John knew the name of the pastor. Furthermore, I'm not aware of Jesus referring anywhere else to pastors as angels, so if that's what he did, it would be a first. But it's a possibility, so let's read on and see if we can glean any more information about this mysterious angel from the letter. John further writes, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. We'll stop there. If you were with us a couple of episodes back when we covered chapter 1 of Revelation, you might remember that it was Jesus who was holding the seven stars in his right hand, which he said are angels, and who walks amid the seven golden lampstands, which we identified as symbolic churches. Angels and churches. And there was Jesus holding these stars and equating himself quite definitely with the triune God who describes himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So to open chapter 2, Jesus reiterates his power and authority to deliver the message because he controls these things. Verses 2 and 3. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them to be liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. So the letter was addressed to the angel, but here it sounds like Jesus is addressing the leaders of the church. He starts out by saying that he knows your works, labor, and patience. The modern evangelical Protestant church, which I identify with, is not really big on works. Church people have an almost instinctive cringe moment whenever the term works comes up because they associate it with one of the Roman Catholic requirements for salvation. But I have some news. Jesus is very big on works. Very big. In fact, these letters are all about works. Remember what James said? Faith without works is dead. 
We are not saved by works, as the Catholic Church implies, but by works we evidence our salvation in Christ. Jesus is all about works because he is building a kingdom that will be filled with people who work, as indicated in Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We were first saved in Christ, and then we do good works, because works on behalf of Christ, doing the things he wants us to do, is the biblical definition of good works. So these Ephesian Christians who are working hard, laboring in the labors that Christ calls them to, which are evangelism, morality, agape, love toward God and man, and Christian training, these things together we call ministry. So the Ephesian church to which John writes are trying to spread the gospel, help others love God and act appropriately, and teach the new converts what it means to be a good Christian. But they're surrounded with evil people who hate them and do the opposite. Naturally, they're surrounded by people who hate them and do the opposite because they are surrounded by people of the world who work for Satan. Keep in mind the time period described in this letter. It is future, so churches are probably everywhere just as they are today. In some countries, like America, there will be more churches, and in other countries, like Nepal, there will be fewer churches. But there are churches, and they are doing churchy things. But while doing these churchy things, these particular church members have to endure overtly evil people in their midst. They must be in their midst because the angel is doing some testing. It doesn't say exactly how they are evil, but it does imply they are sneaky evil because the evil must be teased out. These evil people must be popular and common because the angel has been patient and persevered and not become weary. Furthermore, we know that these evil people are affecting the world around the church and in the church because these evil people call themselves apostles. The word in Greek is apostolos, from which we transliterate the word apostle. In Christian speak, it usually refers to the twelve apostles of Christ, but in the general sense, it simply means a delegate or a messenger. It is a person who is sent out with orders to do something. These evil people, whose evil has to be discerned carefully, were sent out into the world to do something, and apparently, a fair number of Christians seek them out, listen to them, and embrace whatever it is they are selling. But this church, or the angel anyway, tests them and finds that what they are selling are lies. We must be careful here not to jump to unwarranted conclusions about what these passages refer to. It's easy to think the lies refer to Christianity when terms like apostle are used, but that's not likely what's meant. That's because church leaders, the sound ones anyway, will not need to test what these messengers are saying to discern that they are lying through unsound theology. But if they are lying about something else, something that has the whole society in an uproar, something that is affecting the church from the outside but is not necessarily a part of the church, then they will need to do some real discerning to discover if that something is true or false. They will have to look, study, and deduce the lies that the people around them are falling for. And it's not easy work because Jesus concluded verse 3 with a statement that they did not become weary. So Jesus starts the letter congratulating them for doing what amounts to their job, but their job description extends to things beyond what we would call church activities. It's likely that whatever is upsetting society around the church is not directly related to church members or church activities, but is affecting both. Jesus is expecting his people to deal with the world and its issues in an intelligent, methodical, and comprehensive way. But then, verses 4 and 5. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstands from its place, unless you repent. Oh boy, this is a full plate of a statement. Jesus is not happy with this church or with its angel. Specifically, he's accusing it of leaving its first love. And what is that first love? Well, we just defined it a few minutes ago. It's what Christ called his people to do. Evangelize the lost, champion moral behaviors, express agape love towards God and man, and train up new Christians in Christ. What does it mean to have left their first love? It means that the church or its leaders have gotten so distracted with the events that have society in an uproar that they have stopped doing the works they were called to do. The church, it seems, took a kind of a sabbatical. What could possibly cause it to do that? Well, lies, lies, and more lies. 
Maybe the lies concern something physical, like a virus, for example, and masks, and social distancing, and the shutting down of public spaces. That kind of physical problem is not one that is directly in the realm of church expertise, but it would put a real dent in the finished work of Christ, especially when the whole church gets super obsessed with their personal health, wealth, and future vacations. Fear is the number one disruptor of societies, and fear can obviously affect and control church activities if recent history is any indication. And that's a problem. A church that is not doing its job is a church that is straying from Christ, even if that job is only partially and temporarily suspended. So Christ warns the church to repent of its worldly obsessions and do the works it was called to do the way it was called to do them. After identifying the problem, Jesus warned the church what he would do if it continued in its worldly obsessions. He would remove its lampstand from its place. What that means remains to be seen, but it sure sounds ominous. At a minimum, it means there will be some kind of spiritual separation from Christ, which is not a good thing for a church. But in the end, Jesus offers a bit of consolation in verse 6. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, before we get to these Nicolaitans, I have to point out again that God is a good writer. This is not some non-sequitur thrown in for good measure to make this church feel better about itself. This reference to the Nicolaitans has something to do with this church and the events that it's experiencing, which are directly related to the societal upheaval that has affected it. These things are tied together. Let's start to figure out what the connection is by looking at who the historic Nicolaitans were. Irenaeus said that they were followers of Nicholas of Antioch, who was a proselyte among the seven men chosen to serve the Jerusalem congregation. He said they lived in unrestrained indulgence. Hippolytus confirmed this by noting that Nicholas had abandoned correct doctrine in the sense that he was indifferent as to what a man ate or how he lived. In other words, the Nicolaitans were Christians who used their liberty in Christ as an occasion to indulge the desires of the flesh, thereby conforming their Christianity to the world rather than using their Christianity to change the world. That made their teachings dangerous. They were the antinomians of the day, professing Christians who believe they are allowed to sin because Christ has paid the penalty for all their sin. So therefore, their sin must be okay. But Christ told the angel that he hates that doctrine as well. More than that, the implication is that the Nicolaitan doctrine is somehow associated with a problem that's outside the church and is trying to enter the church. It seems like the people who are fueling the social unrest believe they have a right to sin and violate the moral laws of God. Sort of like the people of today who say there are a thousand genders, sexual sin is great, baby killing is health care, and slavery to our health, no matter what we are commanded to do, is freedom. Whatever these people believe, Christ really hates it. The letter concludes with these hopeful words. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The text says that the Spirit is talking to the churches, So the Spirit cannot be a pastor because there is no pastor who is talking to the churches, plural. The Spirit could be an angel, or it could be the Holy Spirit. Either way, the Spirit is speaking only to people who hear what he is saying. And what he is saying is that the people of this church have to overcome something. There is a stumbling block in their way, and they need to navigate around it and not ignore it or pretend it doesn't exist. But if they do navigate around it, Jesus will allow them to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God, which is eternal life. It begs the question as to what happens to those Christians who do not navigate around and overcome this particular stumbling block. Next week, we will compare these first seven verses with their corresponding parallel texts to tease out more information about this mysterious first church of the end times and how it might relate to events in this technological age. Until then, enjoy the weather! If you found this podcast interesting, useful, or important, please recommend it to someone you know and give it a happy face, a five-starry star, or whatever else your app has to encourage others to listen. Go sit on the steps of a progressive church and play it on your boombox outside. Give them something to think about. Underground Christian can be heard on several fine podcast platforms, including Podbean, 
Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeart, Player FM, Listen Notes, and Pandora. If you wish to contact me, and it can get lonely sitting in this dark podcast booth, please send an email to undergroundchristian at outlook.com. Until next time, flip through the pages of Revelation and see what lies ahead. Look up and pay no attention at all to those new kinds of clouds that disseminate in the air from the back of jet aircraft flying at 36,000 feet. It means absolutely nothing. It's just a long-lasting water vapor trail pouring out the back of the world's most sophisticated advanced fuel-efficient engines from the jets. Water vapor that turns on and off with the precision of a switch. So, please, stop disseminating conspiracy theories. Sheesh! Sheesh!